BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, January 22nd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show or on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So we're in the midst of, in some ways, a new feminist revolution. The Me Too movement has swept the world. And every day, or every week at least, it seems like another famous person is taking a fall. And this is not generated it's a small share of controversy you know some people wonder whether flirting is now going to be resigned to to never you know to die and, and never be a part of uh human culture yeah and we're in this state where it started in celebrity circles or at least the big coverage cover uh, started in celebrity circles but conversations are happening with individuals across the the world and this is no more a u.s centric issue either this is an international issue and, you know, even the objective professionalism that we associate with science has not left scientists immune to this particular problem. We've already on this show covered a number of times how big the problem of sexual harassment can be within science. But that's not what this show is about. This show is about how science itself has gotten women wrong. What do you um, mean I, gotten women wrong? <laughs> well, the idea that there are some ways in which science has just been wrong about women, in part, you know, maybe because it's been male dominated for a long time. But also in part of just the, the way that the scientific method works is that we try to cut out a lot of the variables when you're trying to ask a, a particular question. And sometimes that cuts off an entire, you know, half of the human population, because women have different requirements than men. So when we talked to uh, on a previous show with Merrick Glazerman, we, we covered the fact that in medicine, for example, the vast majority of studies uh, on rodents have featured male animals, because they don't have to deal with the estrus cycle. But as we have learned that even functions like the cardiovascular system, things that we think don't have a lot to do with gender or sex, uh, really actually have pretty important, significant differences between men and women. Are these problems at the fringes? Or are we talking about fundamentally uplifting some of the research that's you know, underpinned our understanding of you know, stuff like how our brains work. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, a part of that. And the guest for this week is Angela Saini. Uh, she's written a book called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. And she talks about some of this cutting edge uh, neuroimaging and other work that really suggests that this problem of gender is not quite as binary as we might think that there is a lot more nuance and mosaicism, uh, which is a word that comes into play when we talk about sort of brain regions that are different or differentially activated in men and women, and how different areas uh, related to women have just been ignored by science and that it's time to change that. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Angela Saini. Angela Saini, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So your book is called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. And let's start right there. Uh, what do you mean by how science got women wrong? It's a complicated topic. And on first reading, I think it can be um, problematic for people to read because they think, what science gets things wrong? That can't be right. There must be some mistake there. But um, the point I'm making is that... Um, 
science isn't perfect, obviously, because um, it's done by human beings and human beings aren't perfect. Um, but when it comes to the study of human behavior and human biology in particular, we are so complicated as individuals and so complicated as groups that it's very easy for mistakes to be made, number one. But secondly, it's also very easy for personal prejudice and bias to creep in. Now, because science obviously has been male-dominated for many centuries um, and in some quarters remains male-dominated, many of the prejudices and uh, stereotypes that society in general has had about women have been reflected in what scientists have told us about women. So when we even start at that very sort of basic definition, um, our brains seem to be kind of geared or wired or whatever, however you want to term it, uh, to sort of think about gender as binary. You're either male or female. But the more that you sort of look deeper into the issue of gender, the grayer that sort of distinction becomes. So one of my favorite recent studies uh, of sort of the brain differences between men and women is one that you talk about in your book by uh, Daphna Joel and colleagues, where she took behaviors that are generally thought to be more likely male or female. So for example, knitting is more likely something that a woman does than a man. And, you know, playing football might be the opposite. And then she looked at brain activation patterns that are also typically male or female. And, you know, what she noticed is that, in fact, none of us are exclusively male on all the traits uh, or exclusively female. And none of us have brain activations that are exclusively male or female. Instead, she calls it a mosaic. So what do you think about sort of that kind of fluidity of gender? And to what extent are we talking about sort of something that really is binary from a biological perspective versus something that really is just a spectrum? Well, I find it interesting that we do think about gender as such a sharp binary. That in itself um, isn't true all over the world. So, for example, in some societies, the idea of being people being transgender is far more acceptable than in other parts of the world. In There are even societies in which a young person isn't considered to be yet male or female until they reach kind of puberty. So, you know, where young children are still considered to be just children, you know, we, we don't, they don't think of them as being firmly male or female yet. So this idea that kind of gender is a hard, fixed thing, that it follows biological sex and that it's very fixed from the second that you're born is, um, is in itself a kind of social construct depending on where you live. And it's certainly like you said, not always reflected in biology. Hormonally, we all differ. So for example, in the level of the sex hormones that we have in our bodies, that in itself was a surprise to scientists when they discovered it in the 1920s. So when the sex hormones were first discovered, scientists assumed that men would uh, contain only um, male sex hormones and women would contain only female sex hormones, so estrogen and progesterone, and men only uh, androgens like testosterone. And when they found out that actually men and women produce both, that was a big shock to them. They really didn't think it was possible. It, it, you know, it completely went counter to everything they were expecting to find or their their entire notions and we have to remember this was the 1920s, so they were still living in Europe, at least, with these kind of very Western uh, Victorian notions about um, men and women, that we were you know, very distinctly different biblical ideas about men and women. Um, so that came as a big shock to them. And I think every time since then that we've discovered that actually men and women aren't psychologically or behaviorally as different as we think, it comes as a shock. So today, as this kind of work is being done by Daphna Joel, the work that you describe, um, it comes as a surprise to us because we so firmly believe that men and women are so fundamentally different that we don't even think the same. To, to discover that actually we don't think that differently, um, that our patterns of behavior, our interests and um, our cognitive kind of preferences actually overlap to such a great degree that there are very few people on this planet, if any, 
who are purely male if in the way that we think about masculine traits or purely female in the way that we think about feminine traits, um, it comes as a surprise to us, although it shouldn't because actually there are many societies on earth that show us that that's the case. And, you know, even a kind of basic understanding of biology shows us that that should be the case because psychological tests and, and hormones show us that that's true. Yeah, we just we're just leaving the holiday season when probably a lot of our listeners were buying or considering presents for kids in their lives, and it reminds me of a of a little cartoon which sort of is like a, a sort of you know info meme to tell you how to decide whether a toy is for a boy or a girl, and it starts out with a circle saying, you know, um, is this toy used by the genitalia? And if you say yes, the answer is not appropriate for children, <laughs> and if you say no, the answer is it could be for either a boy or a girl. <laughs> Yeah, and yet, and yet we still feel so conditioned by what the toy companies tell us and what we feel when we're walking down the toy aisle. So, for example, I have a four-year-old son, and to my shame and embarrassment, actually, and this, this is only something I really considered after I wrote my book, is um, I never bought him a doll. You know, from a very young age, it never occurred to me to buy him a doll um, because when I went to the toy store, the dolls were in the pink aisle, and the pink aisle instinctively I thought is not appropriate for him these are toys that are not meant for him but of course they're meant for uh, you know any child there is actually very little difference if any between young boys and girls certainly by the age of you know up to the age of two it's almost impossible to tell these kids apart and yet we are so fixed in the kind of toys that we buy them why have I never bought him a doll um, I've thought about it really carefully and it's not even the case that he hasn't wanted one. He has at times asked for one. He's actually going through a Barbie phase right now. He chooses on YouTube to watch the Barbie videos um, even though he's never owned a Barbie and I think to myself, why why have I not bought him a Barbie doll? <laughs> you know, I was uh, when I was Christmas shopping for my son, I was reading your book. So I bought him a dollhouse, um, and he's also four. <laughs> uh, so so uh, maybe maybe your book has you know it, it at least influenced one person to make different choices. But the point I make about external genitalia is one that I think uh, comes at the core of how we define. Uh, sexual identity. So, you know, when I was uh, a psychology grad student, there was, you know, we used to talk about gender identity being, you know, how we think about our gender versus sex, which is sort of the biological part of our gender. So you can have a gender identity that is uh, incongruent with your sex. And so, you know, now as I sort of teach this same module to my undergraduates at the University of San Francisco, I sometimes, you know, I start with saying, okay, well, but how are we going to define sex? Are we going to say, you know, the presence of certain external genitalia? Or are we going to say XY chromosomes versus XX chromosomes? Or are we going to say, you know, XY chromosome plus uh, the, you know, appearance of hormones during the, you know, critical periods of fetal development that lead to the organizing? I mean, it just goes on and on and on because you can have a person who is XY uh, and not have a penis. Uh, so, you know, there are ways in which we sort of, you know, and, and of course, these are exceptions to the rule. Um, but sort of what do you think about sort of the way in which we sort of uh, categorize gender now using science? Well, I think the exceptions to the rules are the interesting cases, and they always have been scientifically. So we think of sex as a very hard and fast thing. It's, you know, defined by our chromosomes. It couldn't really be any clearer, XX or XY. Um, but yet, as you explained, there are people who fall between these categories. There are people who vary in um, their sex chrom chromosomes, who vary in their hormone levels, who are defined scientifically as intersex. So their sex is indeterminate at birth. And sometimes doctors have to, almost at random, assign them a gender, which then they have to live with or choose to reject depending on um, how they feel as they grow older. Um, and that's really fascinating because studying intersex people has really given scientists an insight into what gender really means. If you've been told by a doctor that you have to be a female when you're, if your external genitalia are indeterminate and as you're growing up, you don't feel comfortable in that. And yet everything 
in the way that you've been raised tells you that you're a girl, what does that mean? Does that mean that gender is then also fixed? Or does it mean that the way society defines gender is problematic, it's too hard, that it should be more fluid? I think these questions are fascinating. And we're really in the very, very early days of starting to answer them, which is why I think especially, I don't know what it's like in the US at the moment, but in the UK, the debate that's happening around transgender children um, is fascinating to watch, but I think it must be really painful for children and parents who are going through it because um, in some ways society and the science hasn't really matured to the level where we can have um, a real debate or a real uh, discussion of these things because we still think in gender binaries. We haven't really moved past that point yet. So when we think about transgender, we still think about two sexes and two genders when actually the reality is more likely to be more of a spectrum and more fluid in both cases. So it's inter it's interesting to watch, but I understand it must also be difficult for those people who find themselves trapped um, between how we define things. Yeah, and I think that you know the the transgender sort of current cultural climate is is a really interesting one uh, for a number of perspectives. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, as we are becoming um, more open minded to towards gender fluidity, but also you know this this notion that it it, it shines a light on inequality between men and women. Uh, and you could imagine that in a tumultuous time of puberty, a girl who who defined by biology uh, and so forth rejects her uh, gender in favor of, of um, identifying as male because she sees that women are not treated uh, as equals in, in her society. Is that something that, you know, we're seeing more of, especially in this current culture where women are coming out and speaking against uh, experiences that they've had of sexual harassment or that we should expect to see more of? I should say it's probably too early for that particular um, cultural zeitgeist to have an effect. Uh, or is this really a reflection of the fact that uh, gender identity does seem to really have some fluidity. I, I don't know about that, but what I do worry about is that girls perhaps who have interests that, and, and vice versa, so girls who have interests that aren't, um, don't fit within the gender norms of the society that they're in and vice versa for boys, um, may feel uncomfortable then in their sex and feel that perhaps they're, they're not in the right sex, when in fact it's very natural for both sexes to be interested in everything. <laughs> so, for example, what we may have in the past called tomboys, they may feel, um, you, you know, they may not feel that their sex matches up with their gender because they're not fitting into gender tropes. You know, this is... This is the way they may frame it today in the 21st century. In the past, they may have been called tomboys. Before that, they may have been called something else without really considering that actually all interests belong to everyone. So I don't know if that's happening. I, I have to admit that in my book and in my own research, the issue of um, the gender spectrum is not something that I've looked at in great detail because I've focused on biological sex so much. You know, it's the kind of big focus of my book. So I, do, I don't know. But it, it, it's such an interesting debate to watch. It's an interesting kind of social um, set of social changes to watch. And it'll be interesting to see where things go. Although I do think we're in a period of tumult right now. Yeah, so so let's focus on the sort of biological aspects of it. And, you know, one of the uh, phrases that you use that I really liked underscores the bizarre nature of, of the notion that women are the weaker sex. So you say, you know, women get sicker, but men die quicker. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's very true that if you look at a, you know, nursing home or end of life care facility, it's by far dominated by women. Um, so what do we know about, you know, why, why do women tend to live longer. It's such an interesting thing, isn't it? It really surprised me when I learned about it because we often live with this stereotype of men being stronger and we assume they're stronger in every single respect, including tougher, you know, that somehow they can outlast women in uh, any kind of physical field. But actually the data shows from, from birth, a female is more likely to survive anything. 
Um, so even on all the major causes of death, even in a maternity ward, I mean, a friend was just telling me recently because her daughter was born prematurely. When she was on the maternity ward with her daughter, um, the boys were it was noticeable that the boys, the premature boys were less likely to survive than the, than the girls. And this is something that doctors see all over the world. It's always been true. And that survival edge that females have seems to stay with them their entire lives. And that's true irrespective of place, irrespective of time. It really does seem to be biological. And the question is why? What confers upon women this this miraculous thing this very special thing and again i don't know why but possibly for because it counters a stereotype it's not a phenomenon that's been very well studied um scientists just don't know that much about it they're only really in the early days of starting to pick apart why it is that women are such good survivors um there are lots of explanations out there one of them for example is um, that we have more robust immune systems. Um, and one of the reasons for that might be that um, pregnancy and the kind of hormone level fluctuations that happen in, in pregnancy and kind of have to happen um, in order for pregnancy to maintain. Because if you think about it, a baby inside a mother is a foreign body. So a kind of overactive immune response to a foreign body would not be ideal when you're pregnant. You need You need a an immune system that's cleverer than that. And this kind of robust and adaptable immune system may be what makes females particularly powerful, um, particularly strong when it comes to certain illnesses. Another factor is chromosomal. So the fact that a woman has two X chromosomes as her sex chromosome and a man only has one also means that women are less susceptible to X-linked diseases um, because they have uh, an extra X to counter any problems that may lie on on one X. Um, so, for example, men are more likely to suffer from X-linked mental retardation. Um, so this is, you know, falling off kind of the very bottom end of the IQ curve um, you're more likely to see men on on that. Um, and there are other X-linked diseases that affect m many more men than women. But like I said, we're still in the early days. These are two possible factors, um, but there are there may be others. Yeah, and in, in an earlier episode of our show, we talked to Merrick Laserman um, about sort of some of these issues of how medicine has has given women the short shrift in terms of uh, studying studying them because it's just easier, for example, in the case of rodents to to study male rodents who don't have you don't have to worry about an estrus cycle you don't have to worry about you know fluctuations in hormones so you know you can take a hundred mice and, um, you know, complete a study much more quickly if they're male. Um, and so, so you know, I think our listeners are, are hopefully quite familiar with, with uh, the issues as they relate to even specific diseases. Um, but one thing that we haven't talked very much about is uh, how sex differences are studied from a psychological perspective. So one of the chapters in your book that really sort of stayed with me is, is the one called A Difference at Birth and, and where you talk quite a bit about um, Simon Baron Cohen's work. And in your description of it, you demonstrate how, you know, he's continued to hold on to a particular idea that came from potentially at least uh, one study that has since been questioned. So let's let's start there. And can you tell us a little bit about the study in which Jennifer Connellan was the first author? It was at the time. And uh, it probably does still remain a, a hugely important study because um, if, you, you know, when we're talking about gender difference, what we're really talking about is nature versus nurture. Are we born different as men and women? Um, now, as a scientist, it's very difficult to pick apart nature and nurture because they um, interact with each other. So, for example, if you give a young child um, a mechanical toy to play with, um, they will naturally become better at mechanical things because they are exercising their brain in that direction. This is why neglecting children is so damaging to their brains because if a child doesn't have any stimulation, their brains really do suffer. Now, from that perspective, obviously, if you give children very fixed gender toys, then it's likely that their brains will look a little bit different, possibly, because 
their brains are being exercised in different directions. So, you know, for a multitude of reasons, it's very difficult to pick apart nature and nurture. But Simon Baron Cohen reasoned um, quite logically that if you if you look at newborn babies and you see a sex difference, then that sex difference must be innate because that baby hasn't had a chance to be socialized yet. So he did something quite groundbreaking, which is he got access to a maternity ward and he recruited um, a young graduate student, Jennifer Connellan, um, from California to go into this maternity ward and... Um, she showed babies uh, a picture of a face and a picture of a mobile. Now, within um, the kind of... Um, there's a context to this experiment, and the context is that Simon Baron Cohen has done a lot of work um, emphasising this idea that men and women, or there is such a thing as the distinct male and female brain, um, that the male brain has a certain set of gender characteristics and the female brain has a, has a certain set of gender characteristics. And if you read his work on the subject, then they follow quite stereotypical gender patterns. Um, now, going back to the experiment, the face was supposed to represent the kind of empathic female brain and the mobile was supposed to represent the kind of mechanical system systems thinking male brain um and the logic of the experiment was that um if boys tended to look at the mobile then it would um reinforce this idea if females tended to look at the face and it would also reinforce this idea and that's pretty much what happened so when Jennifer Connellan went in she did the experiment and there was a statistical difference not it wasn't profound. It wasn't the case that every boy looked at the mobile and every girl preferred to look at the face, but there was a difference. And um, it certainly did run along um, gender lines. And this was kind of groundbreaking at the time because it was the first real example of anyone under the age of two, you know, any sex difference being shown under the age of two. Um, and when you think of all the kind of bombardment of kind of gendered behavior and gendered so socialization and environment that you get up until the age of two, um, that's a pretty significant finding. And it was used in many different ways. In fact, um, it was used even to defend, but if you can remember back to when uh, Larry Summers at Harvard University claimed that the reason there weren't so many top female professors uh, in certain subjects was that women perhaps didn't have quite the same level of aptitude at those really at that really high peak level this study was used to defend that idea to defend that argument because it seemed to show that there really was a sex difference at birth so given how important this study was given how how frequently it's been cited um by other scientists um i decided to look into it and for me, the best way to do that was to speak to Jennifer Connellan. Now, very soon after this study was published, once she got her PhD, she left Cambridge. She wasn't working with Simon Baron Cohen anymore. She moved back to America and started working in um, something else. So I called her and um, we had a chat. And she said to me, she admitted that the, that the experiment itself actually felt a bit like a science fair project. You know, it was quite basic. And anyone who has been inside a maternity ward or been around a newborn baby will know how difficult it is to read what a baby is thinking or where they are looking. Often they can't see very properly when they're first born. For the, you know, to imagine that they can hold their gaze at any particular object or any particular person other than their mother or their father is quite a stretch anyway. But what really was the killer was that she went into the, these maternity wards and obviously she did know the sexes of the babies, um, not all of them, but many of them, because when a baby is born, people bring pink balloons or blue balloons. The names of the babies are often on their uh, cribs. So um, it was very difficult for her not to know. Now, of course, knowing the sex of the babies, especially in an experiment like this, where it's already so difficult to tell what a baby is thinking or where they're looking, really prejudices an experiment. It has to. How can it not? It's not a blind experiment in any way. Um, and this was really problematic. 
in hindsight, looking back, but even at the time. So when um, when Connellan went to defend her thesis um, based on this experiment, she actually failed. And they had to get a new set of examiners in order to get her a pass. And we don't hear but, but, about that when we read the paper. Yeah. You know, when we yeah, read the paper, know, yeah. this looks like good good science. It meets the criteria of good science. We don't know about the story behind that, the kind of problems and the issues that the researchers faced and um, the kind of context of the experiment. And that really shocked me because it's very difficult to take a study like that seriously, given all the mitigating factors. Um, yet when I put the question to Simon Barrancombe himself, he said quite confidently, this meets the criteria of good science. It's published, uh, it was peer-reviewed, and so it's good science. Um, the only issue for it, he did concede, was that it hasn't yet been replicated. And that stands to this day. This, the experiment still hasn't been replicated. And so that actually underscores one of the challenges or I suppose um, the clouds that kind of go around uh, work in this area. You know, on the one hand, we need more work uh, to understand differences as they exist so that we can, you know, treat, um, you know, male and female patients appropriately, whether it's, you know, a mental disorder or a physical one. And yet there, you know, there, there sort of seems to be this like ebb and flow of like, um, you know, you mentioned Larry Cahill uh, in your chapter on sort of the the brain differences, and and how he really feels that he is a crusader because a lot of people have told him, you know, don't try to wade into those murky waters; it will kill your career. So, for people who insist that there are differences uh, between you know males and females in the brain or you know in in, in behavior, etc., um, they do get sort of you know pushed under a lot of scrutiny. So, you know, in your sort of reading of the literature. What is your sort of take home uh, uh, sort of message? You know, do what what aspects of um, the kind of common sense version or, or the folk wisdom of, of what is different between men and women uh, is actually backed up by science? And to what extent, and maybe this is two separate questions, have scientists who have tried to study those differences been the victims of a sort of political correctness uh, bias? <laughs> Well, I think we have to remember that everyone is affected by bias here. It's impossible because we all have strong feelings on this subject. We all have an idea on this subject, every single person um, on gender. Um, it's impossible for anyone to come to this topic completely objectively and to pretend that they are is fooling themselves. We have to accept that we all have some degree of bias and that goes for both sides. So those people who claim that they are kind of railing against the politically correct um, majority who are stopping them from finding true evidence of um, sex differences between men and women, they are affected by bias. But also on the other side, those people who um, say that we're completely the same and the science will only prove that, they of course also are affected by their own biases. We all are. Um, and so the only way to move forward really is to be kind of humble about that um, as scientists to say, you know, anything is possible. We have to go out there and kind of keep an open mind here. Um, the true answers are far more complicated than they seem on the surface. The picture of sex difference, it's kind of impossible to claim that there are no sex differences um, because we do differ slightly physically and psychologically, yes, but then also on the other extreme, I think it's kind of crazy to suggest that our brains are as dimorph sexually dimorphic as our sexual organs are. The you know the research so far, and the kind of overwhelming evidence doesn't seem to suggest that either. But um, because we have we have such strong feelings, very often when people come to this topic, they 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 take a kind of ideological stand on it. And I find that very strange. It's it's quite inappropriate for scientists to do that because the science should be irrespective of that, but we can't help it. So really, I think the argument I'm making in my book is not that um, science was wrong and now we have the true picture. Here's the true picture. What I'm actually saying is be very critical when you read whatever is written on this subject because um, it is so easily affected by the bias of the researcher doing it. 
Yeah. So, you know, we're running short on time, but there are still two major areas that I want to talk to you about. So, you know, let's try to hit one of them. um, And maybe the second one we'll put in as some bonus content uh, for our more avid listeners. Uh, But the first one is about sort of this idea of uh, women's work. Uh, So, you know, you often hear people explain biological or or behavioral differences between men and women as a function of our evolution. Women were the men were the hunters, women were the gatherers. (laughs) Sorry if I'm getting that right. And hunter-gatherer society. And so, you know, that's that's continued to be the case that, you know, that's why women love shopping. Uh, we like to go and pick out, you know, the best fruit from the tree, as it were, whether it's, um, you know, at a, at a store or in the grocery or in the grocery aisle. So what t- tell us a little bit about what you're you've been finding in terms of addressing that particular uh, idea. Well, again, this is a very long-standing idea, this kind of Flintstones model of the past that uh, women would have always stayed at home, taken care of the children, done the cooking, um, while the male went out and hunted and brought home the bacon, essentially. And um, studies of hunter-gatherers really haven't backed that up at all. You know, this this kind of man-the-hunter model, um, which is so ancient and in in our understanding of the past, actually isn't borne out by how real people live. In most hunter-gatherer societies, women bring back, um, you know, at least as many calories as men do. Um, They live in, hunter-gatherer societies live in uh, such a variety of ways that we don't see in our own kind of fixed, large-scale, if you want to call them developed societies, although I'm a bit uncomfortable about that word, but you know, there's such a kind of variety of ways we can live. Um, There are some societies, for instance, in which women hunt routinely, you know, and do so because they want to, not because they have to, because they really enjoy it. The Matus uh, in the Matu Aborigines in Australia, the Agta in the Philippines. There are other societies in which sexual behavior is very different. Um, So for example, the Himba, women and men have complete license to have affairs. And they do. Men and women are very promiscuous. They're quite happy to have affairs. It's not certainly not the case, according to the stereotype, that men want to have affairs more than women. They do so uh, with equal relish, if you like. So um, what surprised me was that this was the case, that actually we, <laughs> these, it shouldn't have surprised me, but that these hunter-gatherers live in such a multiplicity of ways. And what that reveals, I think, is that humans are, again, so adaptable that we can really live any way we choose. There is nothing in our biology that says um, that any way of living is impossible because pretty much every way of living exists. Even the very most kind of egalitarian societies, so the Agta in the Philippines I just described now in which women hunt, were when they, when they were when they were thriving sadly they've um, pretty much disappeared now a very egalitarian society men and women did pretty much the same work and in fact in most societies in the world women work because that's the nature of kind of subsistence living on the poverty line that you can't afford to have a division of labor you have to be able to do everything because um it's very difficult to survive otherwise As a science journalist, I travel quite a lot for work. And this year I was making a BBC series in Kenya and India. And what always um, astounds me is how many more women I see in Asia and Africa doing what we think of as gender-specific jobs compared to what I see in Europe. So in India, for example, I routinely see women working on construction sites. I routinely see women security guards, police officers. It's very common. And the same in Kenya. I see so many women security guards, women farmers everywhere doing the same work that men are doing. Um, There really isn't the huge distinction that we see in wealthier societies because wealthier societies can afford to have a division of labor. You know, this kind of 1950s model of the nuclear family where the woman stays at home and the man goes out to work really is a preserve of the wealthy middle class. It's not how most people live. And it also is underscored by, you know, some some work in sort of 
looking at math abilities, for example, between boys and girls in cultures in which math is considered particularly male dominant, you find this difference uh, in, in cultures in which it's not considered to be a male thing. You actually see either gender parity or, you know, women being better at math. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, even these things that we think of as being sort of really tied to our biology um, the last sort of uh, um, sort of myth that I, I wanted you to speak to is this idea of sort of how we uh, how we approach uh, sex or you know between mates. <laughs> so and I've been talking about sex a lot, but now I mean I mean the actual sex, you know, the fun sex. <laughs> um, so you know, there's this this notion that uh, men are more promiscuous, women are more choosy. Uh, so how true is that? Um, again, we don't have the full picture yet, but um, certainly the stereotype has always been that women are naturally monogamous and men are naturally promiscuous. That, you know, Darwin reinforced that in the 70s, great um, evolutionary biologists like Robert Trivers and Don Simons also reinforced that. In fact, in my book, I um, describe uh, one issue of Playboy in the 70s. And if you've ever read Playboy, which I haven't myself, but in this particular issue, um, ha does have some heavyweight content. And one of this, part of this heavyweight content in this issue in the 1970s was this research, this scientific research into promiscuity by people like Trivers and Simons, which seemed to reinforce the idea that men biologically need to cheat because they are naturally promiscuous. Um, kind of giving a license, if you like, to the Playboy readers of Playboy at the time, probably. Um, it's such a long-standing idea, but more recent research into sexual behavior really knocks that on the head. But I think the most interesting research on this of all, the, the kind of intellectual framework around sexual behavior um, in women has been done by Sarah Blafferhurdy, um, the wonderful um, Californian uh, evolutionary biologist. I went to interview her at her home in Sacramento. Her work is just groundbreaking. From the 70s onwards, she has been looking at kind of the historical and social context around sexual behavior and really undermining this idea that we are sexually so different. Her most, I think, important insight, for me anyway, um, was that if women are naturally monogamous, if we are so chaste compared to men, then why is it that we have so many means of restraining female sexuality all around the world? Now, the example I use in my book in Inferior is FGM, female genital mutilation. It's been committed. There are millions of women around the world today who have had this procedure done to them. It is the most brutal way of making sure that a girl is virginal. It's often done on very young girls to make sure that they don't have sex before they get married. It becomes so painful to have sex that often once a woman is married, she will, you know, ardently remain faithful purely because she doesn't want it any other way. It's too painful to have sex anyway with her husband or with anybody else. And of course, we see forms of sexual repression everywhere, throughout religion, throughout society. It, it runs, you know, it's so common in societies all around the world to repress female um, sexuality in various degrees. Even the moral double standard, if you think about it, is really a way of making sure that women behave sexually differently from men by creating a norm around sexual behavior. Now, if women are chaste, if we are naturally monogamous, then why do we do this? Why have we for thousands of years so brutally and violently controlled women's sexual behavior, enforced virginity, enforced faithfulness in women, if we are monogamous anyway? Surely we don't need to. And this is Sarah Blafferhurdy's kind of genius insight. She uses a historical argument, a social argument, and if you like, a feminist argument to really undermine this kind of um, scientific assumption, this social assumption that we have that men and women are so sexually different. Um, and for me, that is the beauty of having uh, women in the sciences. Anyone who says that science is purely objective and that it doesn't make any difference, the sex of the researcher, women like Sarah Hurdy prove them wrong because the science was poor 
before women came along and having women there to give their perspective, to think again about these questions to do with themselves has really changed the way we think about the science altogether. Well, just in time for Valentine's Day, another controversial social construct, you can get your loved one, Angela Saini's book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. I'm sure it will generate excellent conversation. Angela Saini, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. I want to go back to something you said at the top. Uh, we're in this period where there's a new wave of feminism. After talking to her, did you get a sense that science is an important contributor to this conversation, given that we are still early on in science exploring some of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think science, just like every other aspect of our culture, uh, is at the same place in, in many of these uh, uh, situations. So, um, and, and that is still relatively, you know, not, not where we want to be. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder, like, what is the role of science in this conversation? And you might argue, well, this is really a cultural problem. This is about human behavior. This is about contexts in which men and women interact and sort of just corporate culture, uh, Hollywood culture, etc. What is that, you know, again, what does that have to do with science? But I actually think science can help in terms of understanding, you know, giving us sort of objective measures of uh, sexual harassment or, or, you know, the ways in which women have been wronged. I mean, I know that that's not usually the realm of science, but that's what science is good at. Science is good at taking muddy problems and reducing them into more uh, tangible and, you know, bits that we can study and understand more deeply. You know, let me give you one example, just in terms of gender identity, which we, we've talked about uh, a little bit in the show. You know, as I, as I mentioned to my students, like it's not, you know, it's really hard to define gender when you just rely on certain superficial features like the presence of genitalia or even features that are more deep like the presence of an X uh, or Y chromosome. Uh, we know that, you know, those don't necessarily align 100% uh, in 100% of people with their gender identity. So it's a more complicated matter. But what science has shown is that gender identity is more complex than genitalia or DNA. <laughs> and that's really interesting. So maybe there's a way in which we can use science to sort of unravel some layers of the current issues and figure out like what kind of behavior should be uh, considered appropriate and what kind of behavior, sh behavior should be off limits. See, that's an optimistic viewpoint you have about the current science on this topic, because while you say like, yes, science has shown that we can't think about it in these binary terms, I think for a lot of people that has muddied the water for them rather than making it more clear. So I do wonder if we're in this period where things are just going to be muddy and the science is going to contribute to that muddiness. Like, I think when you were ex exploring questions about why women live longer, why they're sort of the hardier uh, sex, we still don't have great answers to even that question of why why there's extended lifespan, why there is some resistance to heart disease, at least measurably so. I think those are going to be, I think we're going to be in gray for a while. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think it is going to get grayer before it's going to get more black and white if it's ever going to get black and white. But I think it gives you an explanation for some things that might be more difficult to understand without that explanation. So for example, for a person who doesn't understand how a child can be born with a penis and identify as a woman, right? There can be there are people who just don't understand how that's possible. But if you start to understand sort of the the way in which a, the brain was shaped in utero on the basis of the presence of certain hormones and how, you know, it is more female-like than male-like because of certain conditions, you know, science can help explain that and and give a person an explanation for why an individual might identify one way or another. Now, that's not going to apply to all individuals across the board, but it can help I think some people for whom you know, they didn't look beyond that first layer of genitalia, a deeper understanding of what it really means. You know, what I'm really seeing here is when you talk to scientists that have studied other animal species, uh, from fish to reptiles to amphibians to different mammals, and you have similar talks about sex and gender and, and roles, they talk about how incredibly complicated those roles are, that they don't seem to fit in binary roles uh, at all. And we're just coming to the point 
in terms of science where that conversation is reaching humans uh, in terms of that study? And why would it be so different than some of those other species? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, yeah, I think it, that in part, as Angela and I talked about, comes from a place of misunderstanding. You know, we sort of think that humans have played certain gender roles all through our evolutionary history, but we don't know that that's true because we don't have access to, you know, m the majority of our evolutionary history. Um, and in fact, you know, there the, the, the facts might show something very different. And so I think that that's sort of, you know, again, a way of, of, of maybe holding up science as a bench. Mark as sort of a, a way of like, okay, if you're going to make some kind of outlandish claim about, you know, gender roles with respect to our evolutionary history, like you have to have a certain amount of evidence to back that up. And, and if it's not there, forget about it. I mean, the one thing I worry about and probably worry about the most is in this heightened environment where people are having multiple viewpoints collide, cultural viewpoints, uh, societal viewpoints, even even sort of viewpoints from from different uh, cultures altogether collide, and science is a part of that e equation. I worry whether the facts will stand out, whether the evidence will stand out, or whether emotional uh, emotion will carry the day. Because I I really do hope that this science that's underpinning this work does get a a seat at the table and and is part of those conversations because it does have important things to say as we're just starting to understand what this all means. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to live in the emotional world for a while, um, but then hopefully that will also inspire more research and, you know, we can get to a more rational or objective approach in the future. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Trey Bean, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can also support us by going on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and giving us a review. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontas, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.